50 years ago, a small band of idealists set out to change their community. Peace and Health is the story of renegades, innovators, caregivers, and community leaders who discover that change is possible. This improbable journey is captured in compelling detail by author Charles Barber. Peace and Health, available now. One of the more infamous signs at a rally in recent years was held by a person who had written, keep your government hands off my Medicare. Indeed, Americans are often angry and confused about the U.S. healthcare system. We're talking with two of Washington's top reporters about what elected leaders are doing and want to do about the way we take care of our health and pay for it. You're going to see politics come into the CDC one way or the other. Uh, you know, you've seen presidential nominees held up in committees because of politics, either related or unrelated to their positions. And CDC, as you sort of said, has been such a lightning rod of controversy in the last few years. A Time Magazine poll this year found over 70% of Americans feel the healthcare system is failing them. Joining us to discuss healthcare policies are Ben Leonard, healthcare reporter with Politico, and Nathaniel Wexel with The Hill. So to say it's the most extensive isn't necessarily saying a whole lot because a lot of these candidates haven't put forward a whole lot in terms of health policy. It's not necessarily seen as a political winner for Republicans' healthcare, so generally they've stayed away from it. This is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, welcome, Ben and Nathaniel, to Conversations on Healthcare. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Brett. Oh, that's great. You know, of course, covering healthcare means keeping a close eye on Congress. And as we talk to you today, Republicans are still deciding who will be the next Speaker of the House. And it looks like it's coming down to two candidates, regardless of who they elect. Let's ask each of you to discuss how this disruption in the House is affecting healthcare policy and what the outcomes could mean for legislation and committee power. Who wants to go first, Ben? Happy to dive in. Yeah, so right now it's holding, it's holding up a lot of reauthorizations and other health programs that lawmakers have been looking to reauthorize, including PEPFAR, the global HIV AIDS program, yeah. uh, the Sport Act to tackle the opioid epidemic, and um, you know the whole Im the impasse on the speaker situation is um, threatening to you know make it more difficult to fund the government. Um, you know, with each day that passes without a speaker, it's another day that uh, Congress can't focus on you know keeping the government open. And um, we have a little a little over a month now until November seventeenth when government funding is set to run out. Um, so neither Steve Scalise or Jim Jordan is necessarily a health policy wonk. Um, so, you know, it may not matter a ton to health policy watchers which one wins. Although, um, you, you know, uh, Jordan, chair of the Judiciary Committee, uh, you know, has maybe more likely to push things towards a shutdown given his past. Um, so, so we'll see, you know, how that all plays out. Ben, following up on your reporting in Congress, you're tracking efforts on both sides of the aisle to boost transparency in health care. What would the legislation do and what are the complaints about it? Yeah, so this, it's a sweeping package that's come out of the three major committees on health care, the Energy and Commerce Committee, the Education and the Workforce, and the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, it's aimed at opening up price transparency in a lot of sectors, from hospitals to PBMs, and also um, has language on site-neutral legislation, um, so paying for care essentially the same wherever it's delivered. Um, and it 
passed through committee and it was set for a House vote a few weeks ago, but um, it got pulled amid some Democratic concerns. Um, Richard Neal has raised concerns about it not including um, private equity transparency requirements in nursing homes, and he's pointed to a GAO report saying that CMS data on transparency isn't sufficient. So um, expect that, you know, that sort of battle over private equity to be a lot of the discussion going forward. And, you know, whether or not they can get Neil on board here will be pretty key in terms of getting Democratic support if they want to get it through the House. Nathaniel, let's go back to that first question, your assessment of uh, where we stand. Oh, I mean, I was also going to weigh in on this transparency package, too. It's just that this is also, you know, it, it could be one of the casualties of this lack of a speaker is this the vote was initially pulled. There was a lack of Democratic support and there was sort of this the battle over funding the government. And now we don't know who's going to be speaker. So, again, we're not really sure when this legislation might get taken up. Uh, you know, it, it didn't get a vote because they weren't sure if the government was going to shut down. Now we don't know if there's going to speaker. We still don't know if the government's going to stay open in the next month. So, you know, this could be something that could get pushed to the end of the year. Uh, and even then, it sort of needs something to, to ride on. So we're not sure what the prospects are either. Do you think uh, that every uh, whoever wins this is going to keep Kevin McCarthy's leadership in place in those in those committees? Or do you think there may be changes there because this is an uh, in environment where you reward your friends and punish your enemies. Uh, they're going to have a public vote at some point on this, or maybe all of this done as caucus uh, on private votes. But what's your, uh, I think, uh, Ben, you were saying earlier, you didn't think there'd be a lot of change on the committee structure. Is that sort of the fundamental belief that whatever McCarthy put in place will continue through the rest of the session? I mean, Jordan, especially like Jim Jordan, yeah, came from an outsider and he could now be the ultimate insider. So he is uh, chairman of his committee because he was a, a McCarthy ally. So I feel like that might not be something that would change. And it would almost be just even more chaotic to, to suddenly sort of just go and right. replace all of the heads of the committees midstream. Uh, especially right now, as you're trying to get a government funding bill passed before the end of the year, which is, you know, just a couple months away. So it just seems like that would just be asking for for more trouble and more chaos than what it's worth. I think sort of the goal is to to keep things running as smoothly as possible. We're fans of not having trouble and chaos. <laughs> but Ben, I want to turn away from Congress maybe just for a minute. You've been tracking what you call a 2024 GOP candidate's health policy checkup. You've reported that the former president, Donald Trump, has rolled out the most extensive range of health care policy proposals so far. So given that he's the Republican front runner, what do we know about his plans for health policy changes? So to say it's the most extensive isn't necessarily saying a whole lot, because a lot of these candidates haven't put forward a whole lot in terms of health policy. It's not necessarily seen as a political winner for Republicans' health care. So generally, they've stayed away from it. But what Trump has talked about is stuff you might have heard before in terms of, you know, uh, you, uh, stuff on the border. You know, he's called for using the military to um, go after the cartels in terms of fentanyl. Um, he's split from some in terms of pledging to protect Medicare coverage. Um, some in the race, like Nikki Haley and Mike Pence, have said, you know, cuts should be in order. They're at least looking into them should be in order down the road. 
um, and he's called on. Um, he's been a little bit squishier on abortion than some of the other candidates. Um, and I guess one of the other things that he's talked about is bringing production of medicines more back to the U.S., um, increasing resiliency in supply chains, which I, I think we've seen some other candidates uh, talk about as well. Nathaniel, you've covered the strike by the 75,000 employees of Kaiser Permanente who walked off the job across multiple states. What are the issues here and the larger implications for the entire healthcare sector? Yeah, I mean, what's happening at Kaiser is sort of emblematic of what's happening in a lot of places in this post-pandemic world that we're having is it's, you know, they're talking about wage issues. They're talking about, uh, you know, staffing issues and whether or not there are enough workers to, to fill the positions and make sure it's safe. And both sides are saying, yes, we have an issue and we know the staffing levels are inadequate, but it's sort of a, how do we fix this and why is it a problem? Uh, you know, the, the workers are saying the management isn't hiring enough and management is saying, well, it's because workers are leaving and we have this mass great, great resignation. Uh, and you sort of see that as part of this broader labor push in the healthcare sector now in general. So. You know, people are probably watching what's happening at Kaiser's, especially because it is one of the, the largest, like, integrated care systems that we have in this country, uh, you know, where, where Kaiser sort of controls everything. So it's a lot of employees that are walking off the job. But, you know, there it was only a three-day strike. There is no deal as of yet. But I think stay tuned and sort of see how it plays out broadly. In healthcare, they strike differently than the auto workers or others. They do strikes that are uh, really focused on making sure that patients are safe. Um, so they, they have some limitation about how long they can be out on strike by their own design. Is that fair to say? It seems that way. I mean, and the hospitals also said that, you know, they're making sure their emergency rooms are staying open. So there are going to be, and people have been experiencing disruptions of care, especially in California, where Kaiser is Looms such large. a dominant uh, player in the health system. You know, you're not going to see that as much over here in the East Coast in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia region. region. You know, uh, Kaiser had a one-day strikeout here. But in California, it was three days, and you definitely saw care disruption. But, yeah, it's, it doesn't seem like they're, going, they're out there for an extended period of time because people need health care. That's right. Well, COVID certainly disrupted the workforce uh, everywhere. We can certainly... Uh, attest to that and in lots of different ways. The Republicans, uh, and Ben, I wonder if I could ask you about this. The Republicans are especially focused on looking back on COVID and how they claim the federal agencies mishandled the pandemic. I understand Senator Rand Paul has a book out this week calling for the jailing of Dr. Fauci. Uh, the reports that some Republican advisors are drawing up plans for limiting the power of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But Politico has a poll out that shows three in five voters plan to get the new COVID booster. The CDC is recommending, actually it's not a booster, the new COVID vaccine that CDC is recommending, which would seem to either indicate support for CDC's advice or they're just paying attention to what is coming from experts. So given all these dynamics, uh, do you think we're gonna see major reforms coming to the CDC? 
Well, so uh, in terms of what's happening right now, the CDC director, Mandy Cohen, has been sort of trying to restore trust following mm-hmm. in the footsteps of her predecessor, Rochelle Walensky. Um, she's you know, been going on this nationwide tour trying to restore trust, but she's been acknowledging that it's sort of a, um, you know, a, a longstanding issue that's going to take time to fix. Um, there are no quick fixes here. There's some pretty deep-seated skepticism we're seeing you know, in terms of trusting federal agencies on health, particularly in the public health realm. Um, in terms of, you know, there's still significant factions, particularly on the Republican side, that um, are, you know, skeptical of getting the COVID vaccine and other vaccines and other routine child um, vaccinations. So in terms of your question on whether we're going to see these, you know, reforms, the CDC is definitely working on um, boosting health data, making it easier for public health agencies to have access to this real-time data and building trust. But it's going to take a while. These data problems, trust problems, um, are difficult to address. And then, you know, post-election, if a Republican wins, we could see some efforts to do that, depending on the candidate. Um, you know, Ron DeSantis has really been looking hard at this. Um, and Vivek Ramaswamy has said he's regretted taking the COVID vaccine. So we're seeing this sort of, um, you know, anti-public health messaging still uh, being a factor. And, you know, depending on the Republican who wins office, we could see um, potential looking, we could see potential changes there. And can I just weigh in on that, too, is that after this election, the CDC director is going to be appointed or sorry, is going to be confirmed by the Senate rather than just appointed by the president. So you're going to see politics come into the CDC one way or the other. Uh, You know, you've seen presidential nominees held up in committees because of politics, either related or unrelated to their positions. And CDC, as you sort of said, has been such a lightning rod of controversy in the last few years. Yeah because of COVID. So when this becomes a Senate confirmable position, that's going to make things even more difficult. Well, Mandy Cohen is the current CDC director, right? So it's the, it's the next director after who will be? Next director after her. It could be her if right. she gets, uh, if they decide to use her again and appoint her again. But yes, whoever is after Mandy Cohen, in theory, the next administration uh, would be a confirmable position. Wow, that's very interesting. And given that they're holding up military promotions and the others, that uh, does not bode well for uh, continuity in terms of the leadership that's needed in government. Nathaniel, we, we uh, were at uh, the Aspen Institute's Health Initiative this summer and had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Fauci on our program talking about the value of PEPFAR. And you mentioned it earlier, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. Uh, it's not included in the legislation to fund the government. So parts of the program expired September 30th. Again, just remind people about the scope of PEPFAR and maybe why uh, is this happening to the program? Yeah, so PEPFAR is sort of the U.S. funding AIDS treatment, AIDS relief in foreign countries. It has been bipartisan success story for years. It started under George W. Bush. Uh, I think they've said it saved up to 25 million lives. Uh, So it sort of shows the U.S. as a global leader in HIV AIDS prevention efforts. And most years it's sort of been funded and renewed without a hitch. It was not included in the CR government funding continuation bill. Uh, So, yes, as you said, some of it expired on September 30th. The program is still limping along right now, basically, because of some uh, permanent appropriations. But it's been caught up in the abortion fight. 
and uh, some conservative organizations, GOP lawmakers in charge of the committees that were authorized that bill have said the money for PEPFAR is being used to, to fund abortion abroad. The Biden administration says that's not true. Uh, PEPFAR's administrators say that's not true, but uh, it's sort of we're in a, a year where abortion is sort of this big major issue everywhere, and now PEPFAR is being caught up in that battle too. So there was uh, an appropriations bill passed in the House that included a one-year authorization of PEPFAR that stripped out a lot of uh, what they called were pro-abortion provisions. There's a lot of anti-abortion language in it, but the Senate wants a five-year authorization, and they want it what they call clean without these anti-abortion provisions in there. So mm-hmm. it sort of remains to be seen. There's bipartisan support for a clean five-year reauthorization of PEPFAR in the Senate, uh, but not in the House. So, you know, again, another issue of contention going to the end of the year. And another one to follow very closely because it has big impact, life-saving impact. And thanks for flagging that, Nathaniel. Ben, before you focused uh, on Congress, uh, you had the opportunity to cover health IT. Certainly uh, been an interesting uh, decade or so in the health IT world. Uh, But the big story now is about artificial intelligence uh, and its potential biases in dealing with patients and clinical care. You've reported on the explosion in AI funding and investments, uh, but also the efforts to regulate it. Where do you see all this going? That's kind of a big open question, but it is a question of the day in healthcare circles, as well as policy circles, I think. So we're still in the very early stages of potential regulation. The FDA has looked at it and has taken some steps. Uh, the ONC, the, basically the health IT office and HHS, um, has proposed some rules to you know, promote some more transparency in health AI. But right now, Congress is still really grappling with what to do and are in the early stages of even you know, what level of government where it should be re- regulated. We've seen some tensions emerge a little bit recently. Greg Murphy, co-chair of the Doctors' Caucus, Republican from North Carolina, recently said that AI should be regulated at the state level. And that's sort of in conflict with what Senator Bill Cassidy, the ranking member on the Health Committee, has said. He said it should be regulated more at the federal level. Um, So we're starting to see some dividing lines emerge, um, but generally we're still pretty early in in its infancy, basically. Lawmakers are talking in pretty broad strokes about wanting to algorithms to be transparent, um, you know, free from bias, things like that. But, um, you know, Chuck Schumer's been looking at it in his AI forums, but really has not been delving super deep into policy specifics on how it could you know, be regulated. There are a bunch of potential obstacles, including liability issues, you know, who's liable if the AI makes a bad decision and the doctor follows it or the other way around. Um, and all, all these other sort of legal issues that will face it in, ter- in terms of, you know, whether state or federal law, law prevails, um, plenty of unanswered questions. And, you know, it doesn't seem like Congress will be passing anything comprehensive, at least in healthcare, anytime soon. Yeah, it's such a, a fast changing environment. One, we've had AI already, but we've had a new with these large language learning models, a much more rapid acceleration of of uh, AI. Uh, and I think it's very hard to sort of nail it down to figure out where it is. Cer- certainly not a stationary item. So uh, we appreciate your reporting. We'll keep an eye on it. Nathaniel. The Biden administration is especially proud of the Medicare drug price negotiation program, the pharmaceutical industry less so. Uh, They fought and lost uh, 
The president has proposed it'll lower drug uh, cost. Where do you think things stand right now? So there's still a long way to go. Uh, we've got the first 10 drugs that were named. They've all now just agreed, all of the manufacturers of those drugs have agreed to participate in the negotiation program. But they still have to do the negotiations. Uh, there's still deadlines to go before they finalize these negotiations. And then those drugs, the prices don't take effect until 2026. So you mentioned the, the companies are fighting. Uh, there was one loss initially in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, but that lawsuit is ongoing. The Chamber of Commerce tried to essentially get the program paused while the lawsuit was ongoing, but uh, a judge in Ohio said no, basically, uh, that the, the program can continue, negotiations can continue. The lawsuit is still ongoing, but uh, there are multiple other lawsuits in courts across the country. So the company has said they're participating reluctantly, but they're still fighting it too. Well, I think whatever administration delivers on those lower drug costs, particularly around insulin and things that are used uh, so commonly, I think we'll score some big points with the American public. Then FDA Commissioner Dr. Robert Califf told us and others that growing distortions and half-truths surrounding vaccines and other medical products are now a leading cause of death in America. As a reporter, you're committed to truth-telling. How do you see the situation? Yeah, so, you know, particularly with how Twitter, um, I guess now X, has changed some of its uh, content moderation, -ish, you know, uh, policies and its staffing there, it's um, definitely have seen an uptick in that, um, in the prolifer proliferation of some of this uh, misinformation, particularly around vaccines. And um, Dr. Califf's been pretty um, out in front on this for, you know, ever since he took over as FDA commissioner. Um, you know, he, he, like Manny Cohen, acknowledges that it's a pretty difficult issue to deal with, um, but is, you know, hoping to try to make, a, um, you know, the agency messages more digestible for the public um, and being more proactive about, um, you know, disseminating information and, you know, communicating it better. So, and kind of getting out front of it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this continues to evolve, um, particularly amid the fall vaccination campaign. I have a question for both of you, but before that, Nathaniel, I was just wondering, I, I know you focus in on D.C. and what's happening in, in the federal government. I noticed that Governor Newsom, I think, vetoed a bill on capping uh, insulin prices. I don't know if that uh, crossed your transom. I was kind of surprised by it. Yeah, I just saw that, too. Um, it surprised me a little bit as well. It seems like California is going to be manufacturing their own insulin. Right. Uh, and that's, that's part of it, I think. It seemed like Newsom said that, you know, copay caps are not necessarily the solution because copay caps alone are not going to result in the same lower prices as uh, California's contracts to make their own insulin. Would. Yeah, no, that's that's going to be a very interesting uh, a strategy to see uh, making your own insulin is uh, uh, sort of out of the box. Uh, and as many things are in California, so we'll keep an eye on it. But for both of you, we're facing another government shutdown, as you both mentioned, on November 17th. And many healthcare programs uh, would continue. Uh, there are some worries uh, about the activities, such as the initial Medicare enrollment could temporarily stop. I'm wondering if each of you could uh, maybe look in your crystal ball and predict 
What do you think will happen in terms of a budget compromise? Do you think we're going to have a continuing CR through the rest of the year, or do you think they're actually going to be able to come up with a, with a budget um, that addresses some of the pressing needs in the country? Well, it's always tough to predict these things, but, you know, the typical pattern is that, you know, there's a continuing resolution until, you know, right before the holidays, and then, you know, they end up signing some sort of spending deal, you know, right before uh, the end of the year. And, you know, so that's probably just based on history, the most likely outcome, but as we're getting closer and closer to the November 17th deadline, um, it's going to be tougher and tougher um, to, to deal with, and especially with the pressure that uh, these Republican leaders will be under to, you know, vote on individual appropriations bills. Um, it could be tighter than normal this year. Um, but so it, part of it probably also depends on who ends up being speaker. Um, Scalise has seen as a little more close to McCarthy than Jordan. So uh, Jordan could have a little more room to maneuver here. And I think ultimately a lot of it comes down to whether the motion to vacate is still around in its current form where one member can call you know, a, an up and down vote on the speakership. Um, if the threshold for that becomes higher, it'll probably be you know, easier to work in a bipartisan manner and fund the government. Well, maybe I could just get uh, one last question in on a topic that is uh, front and center so often in the news right now, uh, and certainly when healthcare is mentioned in the Republican presidential context, uh, contest, it's almost always uh, to talk about abortion. Uh, former President Trump suggested abortion policy should be left up to the states. That's upset some of the anti-abortion groups. Other candidates are calling on all states to pass a 15-week abortion ban. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, is highlighting his signing of an abortion ban six weeks after pregnancy. You've reported on the infighting among the different anti-abortion forces. Tell us what you've found out. What, what are you hearing? What's the most common theme out there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the common theme is there is no common theme. Uh, as you mentioned, there are groups that want a, a national ban. There are groups that want to leave it up to the states. Uh, it sort of depends on which one you talk to. Uh, you know, one of the largest ones is uh, Susan B. Anthony of Pro-Life America. They have said they will not back a candidate who doesn't endorse a 15-week ban. And you've got groups like Students for Life, which I think 15 weeks is not even close to enough. And they, they want personhood bills and life that begins at conception. Uh, so they're in favor of six-week heartbeat bills. Uh, but all the candidates are sort of, they don't necessarily want to talk about the issue, uh, except Trump seems to be the one to say, no one knows how to talk about it. No one knows how to win. I know how to win. I know what to do. Uh, so yeah, abortion is sort of, it's dividing a lot of people. It's dividing the anti-abortion movement after Dobbs. Uh, you know, there's disagreement of whether it's left up to the states or not. They still don't have a consensus. It's still going to be an issue. Uh, in the Democratic primary, uh, sorry, in the Republican primary, and uh, for Democrats running too. Do you think it still has that energy on the national level, certainly on the state level, every time it's been put up? Uh, uh, they've, they've lost uh, the votes there in, in very Republican states. Uh, what's your sense on the national level? Yeah, uh, again, on the national level, it seems like Republicans in Congress don't really want to touch abortion. Uh, yeah. There was talk of bringing uh, an abortion bill to basically codify uh, the Hyde Amendment into law, 
um, which says no federal funding can go to support abortion, but that never materialized. Mm -hmm. uh, it just seems like it's just it's too too much of a hot button issue for them to want to go near. You know, Roe v. Wade was overturned. Sort of leave it at that. Ben Leonard with Politico, Nathaniel Wexel with The Hill. We want to thank you each for joining us today. And thanks to our audience. Be sure to go online to chcradio.com to sign up for email updates. And please share your thoughts and your comments about the program. Ben and Nathaniel will continue to follow you. Thank you for your great reporting. It's going to be a very interesting year. Thanks for having us. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities. 50 years ago, a small band of idealists set out to change their community. Peace and Health is the story of renegades, innovators, caregivers, and community leaders who discover that change is possible. This improbable journey is captured in compelling detail by author Charles Barber. Cornell professor Dr. Joseph J. Finns says, it reads like a novel, but it's all true. Peace and Health, available now.